Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from... How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story, be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, Give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. The Rise and Fall of Arthur Pitfield Pitfield, the Right Reverend Arthur Dudley, suddenly and unexpectedly, on Wednesday, August 30th, 1995, in his 61st year. Recently elected Anglican Bishop, beloved husband of Effie Bowne, father of Dr. Sally Tremblay, David Pitfield, and the Reverend Robert Bobby Pitfield. Friends will be received at Christ Church Cathedral on Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Funeral service will be held Saturday, 1 p.m. He will be sodly missed. It was an understated obituary for a public figure. Perhaps that was because the rest of the page was taken up with the obituary for Yappy Goldfarb, written from the files of no less than four staff writers— Yappy, in his 92nd year, had played baseball for the Maple Leafs back in the 20s and had lived on as a minor but beloved icon of that bygone era. His death inspired several pieces about the modern commercialization of baseball, the relative price of everyday things then and now, and the loss of innocence in our present age. Arthur Pitfield's death, by comparison, must have proved something of a conundrum for the obituary reporters. He was a bishop in the Anglican Church of Canada, a man of unknown public significance, who had been on the job a mere six months. The funeral home that placed the notice could not provide much more, certainly not the details surrounding his recent election. But there are those of us who will miss him, even sodly. 
An unremarkable but also unsullied career had brought Arthur Pitfield from military chaplaincy to a string of quiet ministries in unassuming parishes. He had sat on many diocesan boards and committees, chairing none, and was not known to hold any particular points of view. He was generally well-liked by his parishioners, perhaps because he avoided conflict and simply let the murky waters of parish politics find their own levels. Nor did he exhibit the least ambition in his ministry. Any personal pride he might have had in his own success, he deflected, referring to the wondrous workings of the Spirit and to the constant love and support of the members of his family. Sally, his oldest, strong and sharp-tongued, is a veterinarian who bought into a thriving practice back in the rolling countryside of Prince Edward County, where the family lived when she was a child. His son David is a struggling songwriter somewhere in the city. If he never makes a dollar, his charm and idealism will still carry him far, especially into the hearts of his parents. Bobby, the youngest, followed his father into the ministry. It is clear to any who know him that he regards priesthood as little more than a paid opportunity to pursue his hobbies, which include computer games and golf, between the obligatory church meetings and worship services. Arthur loved them all and doted on their achievements, but it was Effie, their mother, who received his deepest praise. She was the backbone of the family, a born leader who marshaled her children through their school years, managing on the shoestring budget Arthur's meager salary permitted to keep heart and soul together for them all. People in the parishes Arthur served have described Effie as a brick. She was always the first to deliver a casserole or organize a tea or help out with the Christmas pageant. She thought nothing of advising wayward altar guilds on how her husband wanted things done, though in truth his ideas were not nearly as well formed as her own. Some people have even suggested, and not unkindly, that Arthur's ministry belonged at least half to her. Arthur met Effie during his student internship on Newfoundland's northeastern shores. The parish of Herring Neck comprised seven congregations, five of them outports he could reach only by boat and only in good weather. He was a skinny young man in outsized robes, and the parish enfolded him to its abundant bosom. Every Saturday evening he spent with Effie's family, her mother being church warden and they fattened him up with fish and brews and tales of their long family history on the sea. Laughter came easily, and the color rose in his cheeks. It was, I suppose, inevitable that Arthur should marry their eldest daughter and take her away with him to start his ministry back on the mainland. There at his side through thirty-two years she has been, quite simply, his whole world, though she would brush off with a laugh his attempts to tell her so, Away with you, she'd say. No one was more surprised at his election as a bishop than Arthur himself. His name had not been on the original slate. He was not a dark horse. He wasn't even in the race. But these are strange times in the church, God moving in mysterious ways. And so it was that Arthur came out of nowhere, right up the middle, between the fundamentalist right and the self-righteous left. The right was represented by the Reverend Douglas Laws, a charismatic personality and popular preacher whose Back to the Bible newsletter was received into the homes and hearts of hundreds of disgruntled Anglican evangelicals, 
For too long, his editorial said, bleeding-heart liberals had compromised the essentials of the faith and weakened the moral fiber of the church. Its liberal captivity had produced the virtual dethronement of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, in whose place now stood Sophia, a goddess figure from the spurious non-canonical wisdom tradition. As a result, men had become soft, abrogating their role as head of the home and turning the church over to women and to homosexuals. Only a spirit-led, Bible-based revival, he railed, would save God's people from being given up to their wayward minds and base conduct spewed out of the Savior's mouth, as it says right there in the third chapter of the book of Revelation. The left was represented by the Reverend Canon Holly Wright, an outspoken advocate of the ordination of gays, the demarginalization of the poor, the feminization of the church, and the democratization of the world. She had chaired just about every committee of the diocese from her position as canon pastor of the cathedral, people often confusing her to be the dean whose name they could never quite call to mind. Around Holly there had formed a network of support groups, people who met to share their pain and to work towards social justice and personal wholeness. Some admitted openly that the church was already dead and that they now looked for inspiration beyond scripture, beyond tradition, beyond reason, to Jungian analysis, Celtic roots, and North American native spirituality. The synodical electorate had a tough choice. Both Reverend Laws and Canon Wright had considerable followings, careening off as they did in polar opposite directions. In the middle, between them, was the predictable swirl of nice middle-aged guys and matronly women nominated by their church's synod representatives, hopeful that his or her turn had come and that their parish might be raised up along with them to sit at their right hand in glory. It was the longest electoral synod in diocesan history. Never had so many ballots revealed so little about the mind of the Spirit. An election required a simple majority of the two voting houses of the clergy and laity. But the assembly was split three ways. The right listing toward laws, the left toward right, and the rest trading back and forth between the dwindling wash of candidates in the middle— the most one could discern was that the Spirit was guiding no one to give up any ground. The Synod began with the Eucharist on the Saturday morning, the Metropolitan Archbishop presiding but declining to preach with tensions running so high and people anxious to get on with the voting. After ten hours and thirteen ballots, the Archbishop finally adjourned the Synod for the day, charging all its members to return the next afternoon after deep prayer and serious consideration of the Church's future. They would vote again. The overnight hiatus provided for a flurry of phone calls and hushed meetings as delegates and candidates alike sought new alliances that might break the deadlock. That was when Arthur Pitfield's name was first mentioned, floating tentatively, but then, to everyone's amazement, it began attracting serious attention. He was, all things considered, safe. The next day, Synod members were handed a new slate. A few names had been withdrawn, and now Arthur's name appeared, fresh and alphabetically situated smack in the middle of the list. It was a sign, a portent, a way out. It took the Synod only two ballots to try on the new fit and make its decision. 
The applause was perfunctory as Arthur made his way to the front of the cathedral. He took the microphone from the archbishop to utter his first words as bishop-elect, but electrical interference, it, it sounded like a taxi driver calling into his dispatcher, prevented him from being heard. Synod members began rising to their feet, putting their coats on to get home for supper. The early days were not easy for the new bishop. They started with all the cheap word plays one might expect of a church that was dazed and a bit embarrassed by its own actions. The election was described as pitiful, the new political playing field as a pit field, the bishop himself as, well, the pits, which was often followed by, but, but he's a good man. In clericus meetings, clergy eyed one another as they mentioned his name, trying to read the emerging consensus. It would not be long before they would be making Where's Arthur jokes, after the manner of the Where's Waldo picture book series. They just didn't know what to make of him. Problems in the diocese which had been put on back burners during the election now leapt out at Arthur like angry flames. Every day fresh disasters crossed his desk. An accusation of sexual abuse against a respected member of the clergy, a threatened lawsuit by a parish being prepared for closure, a financial crisis at Church House itself demanding an urgent review of all diocesan staff positions. Arthur knit his brow and consulted earnestly with his executive archdeacon, but he seemed strangely untouched by it all, as if nothing he could do would in itself make the slightest bit of difference. A few months ago, Arthur came to our parish to do a confirmation. It was my first close-up look at this quiet, harmless man who had become my overseer, my boss. I had asked in my letter that he give a children's talk at the start of the service. His secretary said she was sure he would like that. As we entered the church to the processional hymn, Arthur looked curiously small and round in the cope which rose from his shoulders to a height behind his head, like a rodent in robes. His ears protruded from under the weight of the mitre. "'Let the children come to me,' Arthur said as he sat on the chancel steps and the children came forward for the children's talk. But Arthur didn't have a talk prepared as they gathered around him, waiting for something to happen, jostling for position, my own young children shoving one another back and forth. Playfully, he reached out with his bishop's staff and caught one around the neck. "'That's what it's for, you know,' he said, chuckling. "'That's how a shepherd catches his wayward sheep.' The children pressed in close, speaking to him in low, intimate voices. He leaned forward toward them, answering in whispers. This was not like the children's talks the congregation was used to. He felt no compulsion to announce loudly, for the amusement of the rest of us, the private revelations of children not yet prepossessed enough to play to the crowd themselves. He was having, quite literally, a talk with the children. When it was over, they filed out the side door behind their Sunday school teachers. Arthur lingered for a moment as they went. I looked down at him from my place at the prayer desk. No one in the congregation appeared to carry less authority than this small man sitting atop my chancel steps, watching the children make their way down to their classrooms for coloring and flannel board stories and paper cutouts, as if he wished he could go with them. 
Last Wednesday, Arthur was making his way from his office on the third floor down the back stairway to a service of institution in the chapel. Two priests were waiting to receive their formal commissioning to their new ministries. Arthur would be reminding them in the brief service that their ministries would be shared, mine and thine, as the charge read. Usually those words were meant to intimidate the clergy. They were to do the bishop's bidding. But with Arthur... It really did feel collegial, like they would be working together, as equals. As it was, as sometimes happens when men try to walk about in long robes, Arthur stepped on the hem of his alb while descending the stairs, in effect walking up into it and hurtling himself headlong down the second flight. He was shaken, but okay, he said, when he emerged in the chapel, a trickle of blood running down his forehead. But just into the service, With the priests kneeling at the altar rail before him, he became disoriented. He rocked for a moment on his heels and then fell over backward into the altar, slumping to the sanctuary floor. It has taken precisely no time at all for the power brokers to begin planning for Arthur's successor. At his funeral, word was being whispered that Jim Hovey was thinking of returning to the diocese and would likely let his name stand— A respected professor of ethics and a well-known modern interpreter of the Anglican Via Media, Jim's name generated much hushed excitement. But I can't think too much about that. Not yet. I am caught instead by the lingering image of Bishop Arthur sitting on my chancel steps, watching the children make their way off to Sunday school. I can't say I ever really knew the man but I think I now have an inkling of how the innkeeper must have felt that cold Christmas Eve so long ago and what it's like to miss the moment when it comes. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home And when that I've been reading from my book, How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall, where we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysiccaveman53 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But I